Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs in Washington, D.C. I'm Emily Tampkin, Senior Editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. I'm Ida Vok, Europe Correspondent in Berlin. It's Thursday, the 8th of September. You're listening to World Review from The New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Russia has halted deliveries of natural gas to Europe via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Moscow says deliveries will not resume until the West lifts sanctions imposed on Russia in retaliation for the invasion of Ukraine. It comes as no surprise that the Kremlin uses fossil fuels to try to blackmail us. This is something the European Commission has been preparing for. How prepared is Europe for a winter without Russian gas? Then we turn to U.S. President Joe Biden's big summer and this autumn's coming midterms. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. We also take a listener question on China's upcoming party congress. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Ido, Katie, we have a lot to talk about today. And our listener question actually has a bonus question. So uh, let's let's get right into it. First up, on the 5th of September, Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov blamed EU, US and Canadian sanctions for Russia's lowering and subsequent complete halting of gas deliveries via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Quote, The problems pumping gas came about because of the sanctions Western countries introduced against our country and several companies. And quote, Peskov told reporters the clearest sign yet that Russia is using energy as a leverage against the West. So, you know, Russia saying, oh, we can't deliver gas anymore via Nord Stream 1 pipeline is not unexpected. But but can you tell us a bit about what happened and why their excuse that this is because of sanctions doesn't really hold water? No pun intended. So for for weeks now, Russia has been delivering much less natural gas via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline in particular to Europe. And it's been blaming 
various problems with gas turbines at the sort of compressor stations, which push the gas along from Russia underwater, eventually arriving in Germany. And it says it said that because of various sanctions related issues, it wasn't able to service the the turbines or they weren't arriving. And as a result, deliveries were weighed down. And the West and, and Germany in particular and the EU uh, always viewed this as quite a spurious excuse for Russia to heighten the pressure on on the EU, on Germany, by lowering gas deliveries ahead of the winter and essentially threatening energy shortages in retaliation for the West's support for, for Ukraine and also to to try and pressure the West to lift the devastating sanctions that have been imposed on Russia in retaliation for the war in Ukraine. So deliveries had been running at about 20% of capacity, which was very low. And last week, Gazprom and, and, and Russia basically said that because of maintenance problems caused by sanctions, this is their line, Russia was forced to cut off deliveries completely. So deliveries via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline are now at zero, although they continue, I think, through the other pipelines that connect Europe to Russia. They also had this very convenient solution, which was, well, you can just restart Nord Stream 2, which was the obviously the controversial pipeline that Germany was going ahead with for years that finally that project was shelved over this war. Gazprom and Russia said, well, you, we can just use Nord Stream 2. But of course, I think many international observers, you know, that's a bit convenient that, oh, the one way that Germany can get gas is through this project that was shelved because of a war that you started in Ukraine. Can I ask, what is the response in Germany to all of this? Because it's one thing to sit here in Washington and say, well, obviously, you know, this is the sacrifice Germany has to make, but it's another to actually be there. And now it's fall and winter's coming. And what is sort of the German political and public reaction been? The first thing to say that this is not something that was unexpected. We've known for months this is what Russia was angling towards. And I mean, I was speaking to economists, to analysts who are saying, look, the base scenario now, the central scenario for Europe is a winter without Russian gas. And they've been saying this for several weeks now. So it's not like it's kind of come out of the blue. And, you know, now that deliveries have stopped completely, but they were running at 20% of capacity on these very spurious pretexts already. So this is not unexpected at all. And because it's not unexpected, the EU and Germany has been preparing as far as possible for some time. So back in July, the EU Commission agreed a voluntary plan from all member states except Hungary to voluntarily reduce gas use by 15% in anticipation of potential shortages later in the year. And then also Germany and other EU countries were racing to fill their storage facilities. So the, the kind of gas storage facilities where a certain amount of supply can be stored ahead of the winters. And actually some speculation has it that Russia shut off flows last week because the storage facilities were filling up faster than expected. So putting Germany in a better position ahead of the winter kind of the rhetoric coming from from the EU and from Germany is kind of, we're expecting this, we're prepared for it. So this is kind of true. So obviously it was expected for a long time, but it, it's not to say that this isn't going to hurt. So for one thing, the gas in storage accounts for about 25 to 30% of gas consumed during a typical winter across the EU, according to the EU Commission, which is enough to dent the impact of a shutoff of deliveries from Russia, but it's not enough to negate a shutoff. And Germany and other EU countries have been racing to build LNG, so liquefied natural gas, 
terminals so that they can import gas from places like the US. They are making progress on this, but it is not yet the case that the infrastructure for the import of LNG is enough to compensate for Russian gas. And that's quite simply because for decades, the EU has had an energy policy which was largely orientated towards Russia, which was predicated on importing a certain amount of energy from Russia. And that infrastructure cannot very easily be repurposed to serve another supplier because basically a lot of it is fixed in place. They're big tubes. They run under the Baltic Sea to Russia and you can't sort of repurpose that to go to Azerbaijan or some other supplier. There is a lot of fairly defiant rhetoric from the EU. They're sort of saying, we're ready for this. We're prepared. But you kind of have to take a a slightly more macro view and ask, why is the price of gas at the moment spiking? And that's quite simply because there is less energy in the world at the moment, in large part because Russia is delivering less to Europe. There's just less energy going around. And obviously, demand has not dropped as much as the supply has. There are other factors. um, So for example, problems with France's nuclear power stations, which means that they're generating less electricity than they would be expected to. But The kind of main problem is that it's quite simply that Russia is delivering less energy to the West and Europe is a region which isn't a net importer of energy and so it's exposed to this problem. And you can prepare for that scenario, you can try and mitigate it, but you can't completely negate it. I mean, part of the problem is that the preparation started in large part in 2022 and not before that. And I should also say, not in the EU's defense, but I think this was one of the areas where the Trump administration actually had a case to make, right? That Nord Stream 2 was not going to set you up for geopolitical success. You know, Trump was not the only person in Washington saying that. But I think the way in which this was delivered during the Trump years was in the context of really just not pursuing relationships with Germany as constructively as possible and saying, well, you should buy US LNG instead. So coming from a very seemingly self-interested place. And so This is perhaps something where the U.S. and EU could have been working together in the years leading up to this war. But I think the context was not quite there for that. Yeah, there's there's famously this this clip when Trump gave a speech to the UN General Assembly and and he said, continuing to build Nord Stream 2 will leave Germany geopolitically vulnerable to Russia and will allow Russia to use energy as a weapon against Germany. And the German diplomats in the room kind of laugh and their, their expression is one of disbelief. Like, how is this guy saying this? To put it diplomatically, I don't think Trump was probably the most convincing uh, messenger for, for that for that method. But right, the problem is that you're delivering the speech at the UN, which is an organization that you've completely mocked. You know, you're there giving a, a MAGA speech at the UN and doing this drive-by swipe at Germany at the time. Like this is not a way to get people to listen to you. And so, although this was one area where I think yes, probably the geopolitical case was there the messenger and the context for the message was wrong. So the person who tweeted at me saying, haha, Trump was right, you can go back. I wrote this in 2019 saying, actually, yes, Trump is right about Nord Stream 2, but delivering it in the wrong way. So ha, to you. Katie, speaking of context, I have uh, a question for you, which is what, you know, we're having this discussion about Russia and Germany. What is the current context with respect to the war itself? Well, clearly they're all, they're all related. And I think it's important to to bring in some of the latest developments on the ground, which are that the beginning of, of last week, we saw what appears to be the start of this very long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south towards the city of Kherson, 
which has been occupied since the, the early weeks of the war. Ukrainian officials themselves have been very quiet on this. Zelensky, the night that the counteroffensive appeared to have started, said that he would not be giving details about it. The military spokesperson ha has said that people need to be patient. From the, the kind of best reports and analysis we have, it looks like they have had some success in terms of breaching the outer perimeter of Russian defences north of Kherson. But this is not an all-out storming ground offensive that is, that is going to see the city change hand in, in a matter of days. I will happily eat my head if I'm wrong about that. Rather, I think this is more going to be predicated on trying to put pressure on the Russian positions in Kherson. So Kherson is located on, on the bank of the, the Dnieper River. And I think the strategy seems to be to target forces defending the city and target the bridges supplying the city through which Russia would, would bring in additional troops, additional equipment, additional supplies, and to put pressure without directly attacking the city such that Russia is forced to either commit its troops to defending those positions or to retreat and hand Ukraine a symbolic victory. So I think this is something that is going to take place over weeks, not days, perhaps longer. We've also seen renewed activity in, in the northeast around Kharkiv. So I think we're seeing really a multi-pronged effort from the Ukrainian forces now to regain the momentum, to put Russian troops under pressure during this window where Russian forces are in the process of mobilizing more troops, but they are not yet deployed. So, I, I, And I think there's, you know, it's important to look at the, the political backdrop to this. There are a number of objectives. One, and I think we're already seeing this being met is there was some talk that the Russian officials in Kherson and in Zaporizhia might try to hold referendums as soon as September 11th, when Russian regional elections are happening, to try to annex that territory to Russia. So by destabilizing the situation, by putting Russian forces there under pressure, I think part of the objective will have been to make sure that they did not feel they were in a stable position where they control that territory and they could hold that referendum. And there have been reports of an official in the Kherson region telling it to the Russian news agency TASS that they have deferred their plans to hold an, an annexation referendum because of the security in quotes situation. So perhaps that is working. I think there's also an imperative on the Ukrainian side to show that they are still capable of pushing the Russian lines back, that they are putting international military aid to good use and that the, you know, the, the weapons that are being supplied are making a meaningful difference on the ground such that, that that support continues and such that they don't come under pressure as this other theater of the war and the economic side of the war really starts to kick into high gear and we start to see potentially a very difficult winter in Europe ahead. Ukraine wants and needs to show that it is not, you know, it shouldn't just lay down its arms and accept Russian terms on whatever conditions they're offered because it is still on the offensive. It is still taking the fight to the Russians. So, so I think that that's the political backdrop to this. But it, it strikes me that Putin may be misjudging the energy situation and this economic war in the same way that he did the initial offensive in Ukraine. You know, he seems to be counting on being able to divide the West, put pressure on Europe, have Europe crumble at the first sign of, you know, of a real price to pay for their support for Ukraine. And I just wonder, you know, Ido, you're, you're in Berlin. 
you know, is he right to think that? Or do you think that European politicians, that European capitals will prove him wrong and will prove that they are able to, you know, keep support for Ukraine together, despite the, you know, the, the real pressures that are now starting to be brought to bear. So that's clearly the aim. And I think, as I've said several times on this podcast and elsewhere, I think there is going to be very severe pressure on Western governments, on European governments, as this cost of living crisis starts to bite, to kind of go back on the sanctions and, as the logic has it, try and improve the economic situation of European countries uh, by rolling back on the sanctions, which of course hurt Russia, but they also hurt the countries imposing them because they mean less trade. And this is a particularly acute issue on energy or this has turned out to be a particularly acute issue on on the question of energy. And a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a piece on how the far right, the kind of traditionally pro-Russian far right in Europe is increasingly emboldened in calling for sanctions to be lifted, which we can put in the show notes. But on the question of whether this will work, Ruth Deamont, who's a, who's a very good academic uh, Kings in London, wrote an excellent thread on, on Twitter, and she kind of pointed out that historically EU-Russia relations were she says broadly cooperative and, and interdependent. And basically it was in both Europe's interest to import energy from Russia and also Russia's interest because it got a reliable partner, which paid it on time and so on. And that's as contrasted to Russia's relations with its ex-Soviet neighbors, where it was willing to kind of put pressure on them for perceived anti-Russian actions by cutting off gas, which it did, for example, in Ukraine. And it also did in Georgia after various anti anti-Russian popular movements or decisions taken in those countries. And she says, if the EU gives in at this point, the relationship that it's going to have with Russia is going to shift from being this kind of mutually advantageous cooperative relationship to one that more closely resembles the relationship that Russia has with its ex-Soviet neighbours, where basically the EU has blinked and it said, okay, we are vulnerable, we are going to give in, that's it, this has worked, you win. And that would mean that the EU would be, and Europe from this point on would perpetually have, have signaled that it's it's weak and that this this really does work and Russia really has the upper hand here. And the idea that you can kind of go back to how things were on the, on the 23rd of February um, and just kind of go back to the status quo, it, it's a fiction. And the kind of real point for European leaders is that they need to explain that you can't go back to the way things were on the 23rd of February, no matter how bad things are, they're just never going to be the same again. And the, the kind of real test for these for these sanctions and for Europe's support for Ukraine is, is going to be whether that case can be made effectively enough. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on governments. I'm not sure that it's going to be enough to really change the course, but that is, that is the kind of one of the dividing lines in European politics that's going to emerge over the next few months. We will continue to follow both the Russian war in Ukraine and the Russian economic energy war, such as it is, with Europe on this podcast. But for now, we are going across the Atlantic, the United States. Biden had a bad year, but an extraordinary summer. Congress finally passed what was the Build Back Better Act, but became the Inflation Reduction Act, a major part of his domestic agenda. Petrol prices are falling, and last month his approval rating was up by six points. But will it matter heading into this autumn's midterm elections? American listeners, I have been bullied into saying petrol prices instead of gas prices. I'm once again being silenced, censored. No. So basically, you know, if you have listened to this podcast for the past year, it's been a lot of frustration with Biden, a lot of why isn't he taking action? 
And this summer, he actually he and Democrats in Congress actually appeared to do that. But in part, that was reflected in pushing legislation through Congress. Finally, the, the, we had the announcement of student debt relief. And Biden also, in a speech last week, you heard a clip at the top there, sort of plainly stated the threats that a certain segment of the Republican Party, led by and enthralled to Trump, um, poses to American democracy. This is, was controversial in some corners of American media in that it was claimed that this was a partisan attack. To me, I think it's more illuminating that people have assumed that a defense of democracy is now a partisan issue. But that's the that's the backdrop for the midterms. He had a bad year, an extremely productive summer. And will it be enough for Democrats? Well, the actual issue is, will it be enough for our democracy? But the short-term issue is, will it be enough for Democrats heading into midterms in two months? What I think should be noted is that the issue where polls look quite favorable to Democrats and where, you know, Republicans are really struggling is abortion. The overturning of Roe versus Wade and the subsequent passing of really extreme legislation throughout the country has has rightly scared people in a way that I think Republicans weren't quite expecting. That's why you now have Republican Senate candidates scrubbing their websites and trying to take the focus off this issue. Interestingly, this is not an issue where I think Biden's had a particularly good summer. I think his the White House's response to Roe being overturned was go vote and was kind of lackluster and 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 shameful, to be honest. So we'll see if they are able to come out with a stronger message on that, if Democrats are able to turn that that wariness of important policy into votes. I think that sometimes people think of the president as being at his desk in the Oval Office with a lever that's like gas prices go up or petrol prices go down. Some of this is is out of the president's hands to a large extent. But I think that what we have seen is that when the White House and the Democrats engage in politics, they are rewarded by politics. Emily, I know you have profiled in a number of these individual races and, and these individual candidates. I wonder to what extent this is about the specific candidates that the Republicans have chosen to run. I guess basically to what extent we can extrapolate from the, the special elections and the shifts in the polls that we're seeing growing support for Biden compared to just not great support for some of these individuals. I'm thinking about particularly Dr. Oz, Blake Masters, some of the people that you've looked at. In, in yeah, detail. and we, I have a piece on these Republican Senate candidates that we will put in the show notes to this piece. It's hard to separate it out because, you know, you say, OK, well, maybe it's just that they ran these bad candidates. Well, why are they running bad candidates? And in, in, in no small part, it's because more moderate candidates did not want to run because or, or lost in the primary elections because they were either afraid of or not able to overcome the Trump factor, either Trump himself or a base that has no interest in moderate candidates. So, yes, it may have behooved Republicans to put forth candidates who had less draconian language on abortion or who were more palatable to suburban voters. But that's not what the Republican base was rewarding. Look, in some cases, in Georgia, for example, the Republican candidate is a former football player named Herschel Walker, who over the course of this campaign, it's come out that he has secret children. He is probably not the most convincing person in terms of putting forth a vision for the state of Georgia. And he's still slightly ahead of the polls. So I spoke to one woman for this piece, one political scientist, who said, look, the fact that it's a bad candidate, that doesn't mean that candidate won't win if voters come out to support the bad candidate. So Democrats should not be taking a victory lap just yet. But yeah, part of it is that Biden has actually done something. Part of it is the Democrats were given an issue by the opposing party that polls better for Democrats. 
But part of that is that is that Biden is right. And in that, a certain segment of the Republican Party is not particularly interested in engaging in democracy right now. And so it's going to put forth the most extreme sort of almost cartoonish candidates who will help them in that. I guess I would say a little from column A, a little from column B, and indeed columns A and B overlap. And one last question on this, which is at the risk of sounding optimistic, is there a sense in which we are seeing the Republicans or a segment of the Republican Party overreach in terms of particularly around abortion rights? And we're starting to get a clearer sense of where the majority is, that this is not, as polls have consistently shown, what the majority does support protection for abortion rights, does support tighter gun control? I think the short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is yes, but that doesn't matter if the checks on one party's overreach don't hold. So you see that two-thirds of Americans, according to polls, are worried about the state of democracy. As I wrote last week, I think that's a good thing. I think they, they should be concerned because you can't vote away policies if a system does not hold that your vote is equal, if you do not have the same opportunity to cast your vote. So I think it's really important that we see extremism on issues like abortion and attacks on democracy as two parts of the same story. In both cases, this is about an attempt at minoritarian extreme rule. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. We are going to go to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Thanks, Ida. <laughs> okay. So our question comes from Matt, and it is a two-parter. I'm very excited about the second part. Regarding the upcoming party congress, so this is in China, it seems she will successfully retain power for a third term. What are the major factors that led to this point? Had Hu Jintao made a concerted effort during his time in office, could he have been able to stay in power? P.S., not relevant, but did Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine? What does the panel <laughs> believe? Okay, obviously what factors led up to like the current moment in Chinese politics is a greater question than we have time for today. Good news for those of you who are interested in this, Katie is doing a whole pop-up podcast in the coming weeks on China and its past, present, and future politically. So if you're interested, definitely tune into that. Matt, thank you for the outstanding question. And I am as excited to answer the first part of it as Emily is to take on the second part. Um, I think the first thing to say is this is a topic of debate. We don't entirely know. It's not clear how much of this is being driven by Xi himself and, and his close associates and how much is the will of the party that they were genuinely looking for a stronger leader and that there is a real depth of support around the changes that we've seen under Xi. I think there are three main factors briefly to outline. The first is when she takes power as the party leader in November 2012, he really uses the existing party tools, specifically the Orwellian-sounding Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, to, to launch this very wide-reaching um, anti-corruption campaign, which continues to this day, which has both genuinely been used to take down corrupt officials and has also been used to take down Xi's rivals, which has the added benefit of enabling him to appoint loyalists in their place. So long version short, he has conducted wide-ranging purges of both the party and the military. He has understood the Maoist dictum of, of the, the party controlling the gun. So he has worked very hard to cultivate good relations with the, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. He has overseen, again, pretty extensive reforms, which has also had the effect of being able to get rid of some of the older, longer standing generals and appoint people who are more beholden to him in their place. So number one, purges broadly. Number two, I think he comes to power in 2012 with this real acute sense of crisis. He talks about popular support for the party being this existential threat. He sees corruption spiraling, ideological control failing. And he, you know, he really takes charge with this aggressive sense of we need to reassert the party's dominance. We need to reinvigorate party cells, the party's basic functions in society. He he has this quote in 2017 of the party leads everything, north, south, east, west, center, the party leads everything. So he oversees this real push back into Chinese society of the party's dominance and of his own role within that. So he 
is talked about as the core of the party and his role is portrayed as being essential to the party's um, success, which is in turn portrayed as being essential to China's success. So purges, reasserting party control. And then the final thing is just the lack of structural constraints. I'm pleased you brought up Hu Jintao, um, Xi's predecessor, because we don't often talk about him. And he's, he's generally sort of seen as being dull, um, pretty uncharismatic, basically everything that, that she was not. I think we're now coming to see him as somebody who actually did oversee the beginning of, of the shift to more assertive Chinese foreign policy and, and the beginnings of the domestic crackdown. You know, that started under his rule, but he was also constrained by factors that are not there from Xi. So he was very much beholden to party elders. You know, his predecessor, Jiang Zemin, didn't hand over control of the Central Military Commission, for instance, one of, one of the three main titles that, that she now holds until a couple of years into whose rule. So he was not able to go aggressively from the start and cultivate the military in the same way that, that she has been able to do. And Jiang and his faction were still much more powerful. So who had these you know, powerful figures behind the scenes in a way that she is much less beholden to? She is a, a red princeling, as it's, as it's described, the son of a revolutionary leader, so he can kind of appeal to revolutionary heritage in his own right. And most of the, the older revolutionary generation ha has now died off. So he is dealing with, with, with less, with fewer constraints from behind the throne that, than who was. So I think it's purges, reasserting the, the party's control, and then just himself having this red princeling heritage in his own right and not having the same constraints that who did. So to, to the second part of your question, could who have done the same? I don't think so. He had not consolidated power to the extent and that she has, he had not personalized the leadership in the same way that she has. He was still very much stuck with, I guess, for want of a better term, the collective leadership model. So I hope that begins to answer it. We are going to go into all of this in a, in a lot of depth in the, in the China pop-up series, which the first episode I think is due to drop, as the kids say, on um, September 23rd. And now I will hand you over to our resident expert yes. on the Harry Styles, Chris Pine saga. Emily Tampkin, take it away. Katie did not know that this was a scandal. So just imagine all of that knowledge about China and did not know about the Harry Styles, Chris Pine brouhaha. No, this is a reference to the Don't Worry Darling drama at the Venice Film Festival. I have neither the time nor the emotional fortitude to get into the backstory. Basically, there was all sorts of scandal drama surrounding this movie, including that a video came out in which it looked like while he was sitting down next to him, Harry Styles may have spit on Chris Pine. I, however, do not believe that this happened. I think that Chris Pine was just looking down in his lap, may have found his sunglasses, may have been disassociating. I, I did, however, really enjoy his rep's response, which was that to say that this is true is to fabricate drama where none exists. Do worry, darling. There was clearly some drama in Venice over the weekend. You know, do you have thoughts on either China or Chris Pine? Uh, I think I will leave the China punditry to Casey, and uh, I still don't know what Chris Pine is. Our <laughs> producers trying to explain, and I think journalism and the media would be better if sometimes people just say, I don't know. And in that case, I'm going to valiantly do my part to improve the state of our public discourse and say, I that's don't great. know. That's great. Oh, that's, that's, that was good of you. So with that, Katie, get us out of here. Who sent in your questions, but especially to Matt. Listeners, you can send yours in at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at us. 
that's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Lawrence Friedman on his new book, Russia and the War in Ukraine. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.